All right. In a bit. All right. Well, everybody, welcome. So today, um, an opportunity that that I get every now and then to to stand before you and, and uh, bring a message, and it's always very very interesting to me uh, just the process in terms of um, what God places on the hearts of the different congregation members and what God places on me and how it all sort of comes together um, in ways that I just look back and say, wow, you go, God. Um, listening to Madeline, your prayer, um, some of the very same things I was wrestling with um, in preparing the message. Uh, it, you'll probably hear it as, as we go through. Um, but thank God that God is in control. Right. And his word always accomplishes what it needs to accomplish, what it sets out to accomplish. Uh, so let's turn to his word. The message today is going to be titled Salt of the Earth People. Salt of the Earth People. And if you're familiar with scripture and where this may be coming from, we're going to the book of Matthew, chapter five. But as an introduction, let me set the stage with a bit of an illustration. So. Imagine a wonderful store, a wonderful store, kind of like a Walmart or a super, one of those super stores where they just have uh, so many different items. You know, anything that you could absolutely want, you know, is, is in this store. And on one end of the store, they have things that are extremely valuable, jewelry, gold, diamond earrings, necklaces. And on one half of the store, they've got all sorts of toys for kids and in another section they may have you know foodstuffs just a tremendous store with everything you could imagine from high end all the way to you know bubble gum and imagine then one night as everything is closed up thieves break into this store but instead of actually stealing and taking things out they just rearrange the labels and the price tags of everything in the store. And then the next morning, as business is being done, what is recognized as they tally is that some of their most valuable items, like the jewelry, the gold, has been sold off for the price of toys, cans of Slime that little boys would buy. Bubblegum. And nobody has bought the bubblegum because it's way too expensive. This is just a little illustration to actually suggest that we actually live in a world not too dissimilar where, unfortunately, the labels and the price tags have been swapped in reverse when it comes to people which means many of us understand our inherent value, but some of us, for various reasons, are devalued, feel less than, feel like they are maybe the scum of the earth or the slime. 
instead of the jewelry that we truly are. And this can happen for a lot of different reasons, obviously. Sometimes we have parents who may not be the best parents and they send us messages about our value that says we're worthless. Sometimes we let the wrong people into our lives and we end up with partners, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends who just aren't really fit emotionally for a relationship and they say terrible things to us. But no matter, even if those things aren't in any of our lives, we've got a larger society that we live in full of marketing and advertising and social media platforms that constantly convey that in order to be right, in order to be sort of where you need to be, you need to look like this, or you need to live a life that reflects this. And if you stay tuned into that stuff and take that in too much, you will feel like you're falling behind. You will feel less than. Maybe even like slime. So with all the things that, that we navigate in our world, in our society, with all the plans of, of the evil one that would tear us down, Jesus has an answer for that. Jesus has an answer to who we truly are and our true worth and our true value, which is really, really important for us to hear, not just in this day and time, but this is something that goes back through time, through the decades, through the centuries, even back into the ancient world, and that is a bit of the setting for the passage today. So as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up at verses 13 through 16. And this is a passage that is a part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And this is a very, very common passage that has been read. As a matter of fact, just in doing the research on it, they say that this is one of the most commonly quoted in red parts of scripture, even more commonly quoted in red than Psalms 23. And, you know, it starts off with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blah, 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 blah. Um, and we're going to move through it, but we're going to pick up sort of in uh, right after all the, the blessings, blessed bees um, in a certain part. And in prepping for this, it's very interesting some of the parallels that exist um, in the book of Matthew, particularly on the Sermon of the Mount, um, when you compare it to a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and so you'll probably hear some things that are that will be very familiar um, as I draw out some of the references. If you think about Old Testament, particularly if you think about Moses in the Old Testament, um, because if you think about Moses, if you've ever done a character study on Moses, um, Moses was a shepherd. Moses was a bit of a savior for his people. Moses was the person who brought the law, the commandments. He spoke these commandments. He brought the commandments that God gave him that the people were to follow. In a lot of ways, Moses is almost like a, a pre-Jesus figure. Even when you look at the lives of Moses, Moses actually, his, his main events were actually set on mountains. Seven of them, if you actually you know, look at Moses' life, seven mountains. And if you look at the book of Matthew, Matthew actually takes place on mountains as well. Many of the events here, including the Sermon on the Mountain. And there's actually seven mountains in the book of Matthew as well. And they actually share a mountain when you look at the lives of Moses and you look at the life of Jesus in the book of Matthew. 
And one of the mountains that they share is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And why they share that is because both Jesus and Moses are there talking with one another. So keep this in mind as we actually go through what we're going to talk about today. Um, and let's pick up verses 13 through 16. It reads, you are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he goes on, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Very common passage. I think we all know this passage. But again, let's pause, let's go back, and let's let's try to do the etch-a-sketch thing where, you know, you draw on the etch-a-sketch, and when it's time to erase it, you sort of shake it, um, and you get a, a clean slate. Um, and let's try to bring some new eyes and a new approach to it, uh, which doesn't mean suspend everything that you know. It just means try. Try to look at this with some new eyes as we go through it. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the Sermon of the Mount. And he's speaking to his disciples in particularly. Now, many people have gathered. This is why he's on the edge of this mountain. But he's actually addressing a few of the disciples who are actually there, and the people are actually overhearing this. This group of disciples have a lot of things in common with each other and with Jesus, mainly that these are all Hebrew people. They're all Jewish. And Jesus could have said to his disciples that they were a number of things. You are my disciples. You are this, you are that. But he actually says that they are salt. This is his opening statement. You are the salt of the earth. Why did he say that they were salt? Why would he use salt as the thing when he could have actually said anything? Anything else. And I think there is some significance as to why Jesus actually led out with the fact that they were salt. So in my research, um, and if you do this research, because we all have these wonderful cell phones that we can, you know, our supercomputers. If you look up salt and all the uses and all the things that, that salt is involved with, particularly in the ancient world, salt has thousands of uses, thousands, absolutely thousands when you look back in the ancient world and how important salt was, it is of primary value in the ancient world at a time when there wasn't necessarily the same refrigeration that we have. So how do you keep food at a time where, you know, so many things depended on the essentials of this one substance in order for the society to even move, that it was used as currency. And so one of the things that you'll find when you actually look up salt, particularly in the ancient world in terms of its uh, use, is it's a valuable commodity. What I mean by that is salt has so many uses and is so essential to life that it's actually treated like gold, silver, or money. It's treated as currency. So that back in Jesus' day, they had the Roman occupation. Roman soldiers were in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And how these Roman soldiers were often paid was not necessarily in coins or money, but the money that they were paid was actually in salt. 
Salt could be measured out, salt could be distributed, and so they were paid in salt. And so this is also when we think about, you know, that's that's a strange thing, but it's such a um, foundational part of the Roman economy from which the U.S. also bases a lot of its economy on, that the word for the pay for the soldiers in salt was salarium, sal means salt in Latin, and salarium was the pay, the salt pay that they would get. Salarium is the word that we actually then appropriate to talk about our pay, which is salary, very similar. And so salt is something that is absolutely worth gold and silver and money. It's the currency. And this is also where we get that saying, if a soldier is not a good soldier, they're not worth their salt. These are how we actually come up with these ideas. So when Jesus is telling his disciples, and he launches off with, they are the salt of the earth, he's not saying that they are less than or they're a rock, right? They're, he's saying that these people are some folks who are extremely valuable. And this is the start. And I think that is such an important thing to, to not skip over, because obviously in the world that we inhabit as Christians, oftentimes we can get very focused on the fact that we've got sin, that we struggle, that there might be times where we absolutely live and, and behave in ways that are slimy, that are lower than low, that are ugly. But yet and still, even though we struggle, even though we have these proclivities, God says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says that we are made in the image of God. And those things have incredible meaning in terms of our inherent value. The fact that Jesus would even come and sacrifice and die for humanity says something about how God sees us and the value that God actually imputes to us. So as we think about the inherent value that that god has for us but yet we think about how the world in which we inhabit can devalue us and send those constant messages that convince us that somehow we are less than it is imperative that god actually speaks to us in ways that reminds us of who we truly are in god's eyes when we consider the woman with the issue of blood who is bleeding for 12 years I think this is a re really good illustration of the value that people have, and yet we can be convinced through our everyday situations and circumstances of devaluation, and yet God comes in with a message that then addresses our very need, which is restores our awareness of our value, restores us to who God truly sees us and how God truly sees us. And when we think about this lady, who, who bled for 12 years within her context. If she's bleeding, she's got to actually remain separate from her community. When she's remaining separate from her community, if she were to pass through, she cannot have contact with anybody. As a matter of fact, she's got to warn people when she's passing through that she's unclean or that she is not to be touched. And so she remains separate for not just a little while, a few days, but for 12 years. And after 12 years of remaining segregated and separated, that starts to absolutely have an impact on how one might see themselves and how one might actually feel about themselves, let alone how everyone around you responds to you. 
So she gets this bold idea in faith that, hey, I've spent all that I've got on doctors and they haven't been able to help me. I've heard of this Jesus. And she reaches back into what she knows about the scriptures, which for them would be Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. And, and she recalls something about the promised one, the Messiah. And, and there's healings in the wings. And the wings, according to the way that they thought of wings, aren't wings on the back, but wings are part of the tassel on the bottom of, of the garment that people wear. It's known as wings. And so she says, if I could just get to him and, and touch those wings, if he's the Messiah, which I truly believe, then, then maybe there's healing for me. And she presses her way through against what should be. She's jostling with people, coming into contact with people against what should be. And she reaches Jesus just enough to touch that part of his clothes that she's trying to get to. And immediately, Scripture says she's healed. She feels the healing in her body. The, the bleeding stops. Now, you would think that'd be the end of the story. You'd think that, okay, she's got her healing, go on about her life. But Jesus actually pauses because clearly there's more that needs to be done. And Jesus says, who touched me? In the midst of a bunch of people touching him, who touched me? And they go through this and the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Look at all these people around you. What do you mean who touched you? And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you can be in a, a, a room full of, of conversation and noisy folks. And it's just a, a constant clamor and din. But somebody says your name. And in the midst of all of that, that's what you hear. In the midst of all that touching and pushing, people trying to get to Jesus, somebody touched Jesus with the faith that he is the Messiah. And in the Messiah, there is healing. And it spoke to Jesus's true identity in ways that maybe not everybody else understood. And so it's almost like when you hear your name, your identity called, in the midst of a bunch of noise and clamor, how somehow that cuts through and grabs your attention and gets your focus. And Jesus then calls this lady and she comes forward knowing what she's done. And it's very interesting because Jesus's first words to her are not, you outsider, you outcast. Jesus's first word to this lady in terms of how he addresses her is daughter. She's already gotten the healing. So in her body, she's restored. But there's something else that absolutely needs to be done because for 12 years, she's been considered an outsider or an outcast. For 12 years, she's been starved for reconnection and embrace. And so what Jesus needs to do, Jesus recognizes that it's not just what's needed in the moment, but she's got to be reminded of who she is. And who she is is not the outcast and the outsider. Who she is is the daughter. She's the one who is embraced. And daughter, mind you, is a term that, that implies a closer relationship than even disciple. So he's there in the midst of people, he's there in the midst of his disciples, and he's addressing her as daughter. 
the very thing that she needs relationally, emotionally, psychologically, in order to complete the healing in the package. Jesus calls her for her identity. You are my child. This is what it means then to be followers of Christ, to actually walk in the spirit, to walk in the ways that Christ has actually led us to walk, because all around us all the time, there are people who by virtue of just confusion of their identity based on how life has treated them, based on things that were out of their control, even sometimes based on the choices that they have made themselves, they are devalued. They're seen as less than, they're seen as the slime or the scum. And just by listening to the Holy Spirit, just by having that right word in that right time, we may be the voice, the hands, the feet of Christ in situations where just by looking somebody in the eye, just by giving them a smile, reminds them of their humanity and truly how God sees them. Salt is valuable for these reasons. It's a valuable piece and Jesus is saying, disciples, you're valuable. And it's, understood, it's understandable why Jesus might need to say that to these disciples. Number one, these are not necessarily the most educated folks. They're not the rich folks. As a matter of fact, it's quite surprising that Jesus would call these, this particular bunch of people to be his disciples. You would think, oh, Jesus is looking for the best and the brightest. Jesus is looking for the best and the brightest. But the best and the brightest according to the world and the best and the brightest according to Jesus can be two different things. And if we listen to the world's version of best and brightest in ways that we may not stack up, and totally buy into that, we can miss all that God has in store for us because God has called us to a particular time and for a particular moment that only we have been called and made for. And God reminds us of our value all the time. So we're valuable. Another piece that I think is truly, truly interesting to contemplate and, and apply in terms of a spiritual lesson in terms of salt and, and the meaning of salt is the obvious one. Salt is a seasoning. Salt makes food taste better. Now, this is my favorite one to talk about. Uh, I do a lot of traveling. I go all over the world. I get a chance to eat a lot of things, and that's one of the joys that I get a chance to try new foods. It ain't all good, let me just tell you. It is not all wonderful. But what I have found is even things that I have to choke down, if I put some salt on it, <laughs> it makes it a little better, right? And typically, I'm not a chef, but what, what people who actually do a lot of cooking talk about when it comes to salt, what is salt actually doing to the food? It's not covering up the flavor. It's actually drawing out the flavor. It draws out the flavor of the food. And for those of us who, who might have to limit our salt intake because it's not healthy to have too much salt, um, one of the things that, that we, we become accustomed to is when we have less salt in our diet and we actually get to eat something with a little salt in it and it's not oversalted, you actually taste the food for once. You're not just tasting a bunch of salt. Salt actually brings out the flavor of the food. It draws out the best of the food. And I think that's very interesting to consider as we think about why Jesus would call his disciples salt of the earth. Because I do think there's a parallel there that it is full of valuable lessons in terms of think about the people with whom we have interactions and 
are we drawing out the best in the people around us based on our very presence, based on how we interact with them? And there's a lot of ways that that can break down, obviously, because sometimes people can be anti-gospel. People can actually have some anger towards God. And so when we show up and we represent God, sometimes that can be the very thing that they're at war against. And sometimes we don't understand why people respond to us in particular ways that may not be the best. But thank goodness for the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus actually, before we get into this, he's talking about, blessed are you who are persecuted for my namesake. There can be reasons that we actually suffer because we represent Christ. But I would also say, just be sure that if we're suffering, make sure that we're suffering because of the cause of Christ, not because of us, that we do bring our own suffering. And while we're not perfect, I know, and, and God uses each and every situation to make us more and more Christ-like, and we, we confess our sins and our faults to God and to one another, and God straightens us up and, and helps work out that stuff. I always like to think about it in this way. When we get saved, when Christ comes into our life, when Christ starts to change us, the self-imposed calamity and problems that we have should decrease. The self-imposed chaos and calamity should decrease. But that chaos and calamity and maybe even persecution from the world, that might actually increase. So the sign of actually walking in Christ is not necessarily a carefree life where there's no problems. The sign of walking in Christ is the problems that you encounter are not problems that you created, but they are problems that might exist because you actually represent Christ in a world that is anti-Christ. And your very presence oftentimes can be the thing that causes people to actually come at you in ways that are not helpful. But a good example, I think, of salt as, as seasoning and, and people, the people of Christ as seasoning, bringing out the best in the people around them, came uh, this past year for me, um, right here at home in Los Angeles. I was uh, tasked with, had the opportunity, I should say it that way, of working with a group of kids when I say kids, they were probably between the ages of 8 and 10 or 11. And I had the opportunity to work with this group of kids uh, during the school day. These were a group of kids in elementary school. Um, and I got the opportunity to go into the elementary school each week, uh, gather these groups of kids and uh, run a group and just deal with the things that kids are concerned about. Now, this was not your typical school, and these were not your typical kids. The school was a school in inner city, South LA. And these kids were not the typical kids in the sense that these were the kids that consistently got put out of the classroom because of their misbehavior. So the principal said, hey, what we need is we need a group where these kids could come over the course of the school day because they're getting put out of the class every day. And they need an experience where they don't get put on the outside. They don't get asked to leave. They don't get put aside. They need to experience being included, but their behaviors are such that we can't actually include them in the normal classroom. So of course my response is, 
I'll get somebody to do that because I'm not going to be in that room with those kids. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in the room with kids uh, who have behaviors like that. And so rather than sort of jump in there uh, ill-prepared, I know someone who actually is really versed at this. And this particular person was a young lady. She's not yet a full, you know, psychologist and therapist. Uh, she, she's in training. And I said, hey, you know, we've got this chance to actually help some kids. And I know you've really got a heart for kids. And this, this is a believer. Um, she jumped on it right away. She's like, absolutely. And she showed up each and every week. She was there present for these kids. And, and here's what happened with the kids. Initially, when the kids got put into the groups, the misbehaviors were all over the place. And she had a way of, of not responding to the misbehaviors by kicking them out, but by focusing in on when they were actually on track and on task. So on track and on task for these kids was just the fact that maybe for the next, for, for five minutes, they actually sat there and they weren't sort of arguing with the kid next to them. They weren't sort of reaching out, doing things that they weren't supposed to do. And so she'd recognize, hey, you're on task. And she'd, she'd assign them points. They all have these cell phones, even as in elementary school. And so she figured out a way to actually assign them points that they would that would register on their cell phone. And they could collect these points every time that they were on task and doing behaviors that were you know, considered you know, the good behaviors. Over time, what we saw was that the misbehaviors became less and less, and the positive behaviors started to take over because they weren't getting put out and they were actually being reinforced for just being on task, just sitting in the room, just expressing their feelings. Even when they were feeling some kind of way negative, if they actually expressed that, put words on it rather than reach out and hit, they got points for that. And slowly, surely, and steadily, you saw a change in these kids' behavior. Now, here's where the real change really showed up, though, because at the end of the school year, they had amassed all these points because their behaviors had changed for the positive. And with all these points, we actually developed a bit of a store where the kids can then go in and exchange these points for nice gifts and things that they might want for themselves. And of course, we expected, OK, these kids are going to, you know, they hit pay dirt. They've got all this, these points. They're going to have a really good summer because they're going to buy a lot of nice things for themselves, rightly so as a result of really doing well. And what, what surprised me, but it also was a testament to here's this young lady who felt a call by God to actually be salt and bring out the best in the people around her, including these kids. A majority of these kids considered the quote unquote bad kids, considered quote unquote the selfish kids. Rather than buy gifts for themselves, they actually saved up their points and bought really nice gifts for their younger siblings, for the other people in their lives. This to me is not just about behavior, but that's character. And how you can look at a child at the beginning of the year and conclude that the character is bad because the behavior is misbehaving. But yet, deep inside, there's actually character and value. And that needs to be brought out and drawn out. And this young lady was the salt that allowed that to come forward. These are the things that we may not necessarily all get the opportunity to do. But I do think but don't underestimate the little things. As we pass people on the street, as we pass people that we may see each and every day, if we interact with them in ways that is God honoring, 
these things go a long way because we don't know what people are dealing with. We just see the outside and the external. And unfortunately, we can conclude like the world, like there's something wrong there and there's something off in that character and we, we can question that value and people pick up on those subtleties. They absolutely do. But the way that God sees them, God sees that value. And there's a way that God might be using us to actually draw that out, similar to salt in right quantities and proportion and good food. And I'm hungry. Another thing about salt that this really comes a bit more from, from uh, so I lived in Texas uh, for a number of years. Um, and in Texas, even though I'm not a cowboy, even though I'm not a farmer, um, I lived up against a lot of farm and a lot of fields where they had horses and cows. Salt stimulates people's thirst. Salt will cause you to drink water. Now, why I say this is because a lot of times, you know, it, one, one of the scriptures that I sort of grapple with and, and really like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman and, you know, she's there to, to draw water and get water. And Jesus is talking with her and saying, hey, you know, if you drink this water, you'll just come back, you know, because you'll get thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I give, you won't thirst again. As a matter of fact, you drink the water that I give you. It's going to cause you to actually become a spring of water that's going to well up and gush out into eternal life. And so Jesus is having this conversation and the lady is intrigued. She's and, and the result of that is the lady's like, give me some of this water so I don't have to come back here every day. So now she's intrigued. She, she's thirsty for what God has for her. And that is salt. Does it stimulate that thirst in people where they would then run to Jesus in order to drink from what Jesus would actually provide? And I think oftentimes over the years, I, I've sort of learned this saying, which, you know, is not just in, in Texas because they've got horses and cows there, but, but it's a common saying, which is, yeah, but you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Everybody's heard that saying? Absolutely. Which is kind of true, kind of true. But that's not the give up point. Because anybody who has worked around animals, knows that, yeah, they may not be drinking right now, but put a salt lick out there next to the animal. Put a salt lick. Anybody know what a salt lick is? It's just a big cube of salt that if you put out in a field full of animals, horses, cows, those animals become like babies with a lollipop. They just slobber all over this thing. It looks disgusting, okay? But they go at it. They're, they're just licking this thing and they, you know, they'll be there for 20 minutes. After about 10 minutes of licking on a salt lick, something starts to emerge in these animals that makes them crave something. And what they're craving besides that salt then is water. So it is not true that you could lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. If you give them salt, it stimulates the thirst and they will drink. And I think all too often we, we give up. We think that hey, you know, I've told this person about Christ a hundred times, you know, but you know what? They're just not listening. And, you know, it's not on us to, to win people's hearts for Christ. But I would also say, okay, but maybe let's try to go a step further and say, okay, if we're telling people about Christ, but are we living in such a way where they're experiencing us 
and, and recognizing the fruit of the spirit that God creates in us and having that experience as well. It's not just the words, but what is their actual experience with us? Are we actually being the salt in their life where they're experiencing something with us that has a certain appeal and it draws them to engage with us? And after enough engagement, hey, I think I want some of that. Now they become thirsty for the very thing that you and we have been able to experience from Jesus. That's the water gushing up to eternal life then that then is available for others as well. So it stimulates thirst. Let's be salt. One of the other things though, that, well, a couple other things with, with salt that I just wanna point out because um, all these things are, are wonderful examples, maybe even very good things to meditate on in terms of having spiritual application, in terms of what it means to be salt. Um, but there's some very particular things that I think Jesus was meaning when he was saying you are salt, speaking particularly to this group of men and disciples who are with him. There's something particular that even though all the things that we've talked about are true, there's something that I think was additional or foundational in terms of what salt meant that maybe we we don't understand so easily because we're not in their particular context. So, so let's jump there. But in order to jump there, we have to understand some other things about salt, which one of them is salt is a preservative. Okay? It preserves things. So if, if you've got no refrigeration or very limited refrigeration, how do you keep food for the time when, the, when there's not the season of harvest? Well, you salt the food, you, particularly the meat. It keeps the bacteria at bay. They had fish that they would often eat because it's around the Sea of Galilee. Um, and and one a, a very interesting fact that I heard because uh, Patty told me about this, but Patty told me that she actually got it from Madeline, um, was there was a city along the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. And Magdala actually was known for having this tower where this tower was a salt tower, but it wasn't made of salt. It was a tower where they actually salted the fish that they caught from the Sea of Galilee. And they would then keep this fish for, for people to eat and send it around. And this is the trade that they did. But this salt tower, salting tower was huge. And you could actually see this salting tower from pretty much anywhere along the coast, um, along the Sea of Galilee. And where the Sermon on the Mount was actually being preached from was this mountain that sloped down to the Sea of Galilee. And within eyeline sight, from where Jesus would have been preaching would have been this tower off in the distance. So it's almost like Jesus had this incredible visual that is like, you know, the, the PowerPoint of the day, right? So he's talking about be salt of the earth and, and everybody can sort of look and see that, oh, wait, there's a salt tower there. And the value of that salt is it preserves, it preserves the fish. So we have food to eat. There's a preservative. It keeps away the bacteria. It keeps away the decay. It's a preservative. And, and so there is something about Yes, when we are salt and we're walking in God's laws and God's ways according to the spirit of God, does that preserve us? Absolutely. But ultimately, there, there's eternity at stake. There, there's eternal life, talking about the ultimate preservative. And so that's something to hold on to. But then salt also can purify, takes away the bacteria, but it's also medicinal in the sense that when there's ailments, there are certain things that you can mix with the salt, olive oil or what have you that they had back in that day and to help people to actually heal and recover. And so it was involved in a lot of the purification as well. So it got rid of the impurities and made things healthy again. 
So hold on to these things because this is, I think, what Jesus might have been getting at when he talked about salt with the disciples, that really only they would sort of pick up based on a Hebrew understanding of their own history and how God actually viewed and used and treated salt throughout the scriptures. And so in order to understand this a little bit more, we've got to, we've got to go back and recall some of these things. Salt actually was always present whenever God is talking about in, in assigning the covenants, the promises that he's making with people or groups of people. Salt is an important part of that. And, and I never really caught that. But when you go back and you look at the scriptures, it is actually there. And so when you think about the major covenants, and we're just talking about God's promises with the people, with his people that he has made over the years. Think about this. There, there's sort of four major ones in Old Testament that these disciples would have immediately been able to call back to. First major covenant was Noah. God flooded the earth. God made this covenant with Noah on the other side saying, I'll never flood the earth again, even though people might act up and cut up and do horrific things. That is not what I'm going to do again. But instead, God says he's going to preserve life so that he can then redeem it through the offspring of the woman in Genesis. That preserve piece was a part of the promise that God made. So when we think about salt and its preserve piece, let's not be surprised if salt starts to show up then in terms of how God would instruct his people to remember and recall things. The next major covenant that God would make besides after Noah would be Abraham. So with Abraham, God makes a promise that he's going to give him a huge family. And uh, with this family, this family is not just going to be huge and prosperous, but they're going to inherit a particular piece of land, Israel. And they're not just going to be prosperous and inherit this particular piece of land, but they're also going to become a blessing to the rest of the world. They're also going to make the world a better place. God is going to do some things through his people that blesses the rest of the world. And Abraham, of course, has to do certain things, you know, circumcise all your male children and, and males that you that come into your household. Um, obviously, leave your family, go where I will direct you. That's your end of the bargain. But God is going to uphold God's end of the bargain. So God is going to preserve and prosper Abraham. God is also going to bring value to everyone through Abraham as well. So consider the value piece, consider the preserve piece, and don't be surprised if salt then starts to show up in how God would have these things remembered. After Abraham, think about Moses. Moses had a covenant that was brought to the people through God. And if you recall this one, Moses brought the commandments that God would actually instill for the people. But the promise that God made to the people was that he would actually make them a holy nation. A, a, a nation of priests is actually what the scripture actually says. And this priestly nation would then obviously bring a blessing to the rest of the world. So when we're thinking about priestly nation, taking a group of people, making them a nation, and then creating them to be sort of a priestly nation, think about purification. Think about that process and what God is going to then have to take these folks through in order to bring those things about. And think about salt in terms of its purification properties that we've talked about. So then when we look at the scriptures around these things, don't be surprised when you see salt show up in ways that you might not have seen it before, because all of these promises 
have the sort of effects of salt sort of embedded in them. So in Leviticus chapter 213, it says about some of these sacrifices, some of the offerings that God expects his people to perform, you shall not omit from your grain offerings the salt of the covenant with your God. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. Exodus 30, 34 through 36, God says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and unca and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense in equal part of each and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy, and you shall beat some of it into powder and put part of it before the covenant in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be for you most holy. And these are not just two passages. There are many passages that when you look at what God is instituting in terms of how God's covenant is to be remembered in practice, salt is an inherent part of it. The last big covenant that the disciples understand at that point is the covenant that God makes with David. God's people enter that promised land that God promised, Canaan. So they have Israel. David is the king. Well, actually, they, they, they want a king in order to be like the other nations. And that first king, Saul, fails. The second king is David. And David is obviously a man after God's own heart. So God actually sets up a covenant, a new promise with David. And that promise is he's going to actually preserve David's line of kingship. And he's going to select someone from David's line to be king forever. Talking about preserve forever. That, of course, we know is the Messiah. And, of course, what this person, what this Messiah will bring then is he will set up the world in such a way where the world can stream to Israel, stream to Jerusalem and get the wisdom and everybody's going to benefit from it. That value is going to go out to the rest of the world. And so a lot of times we don't think about where's the salt in that. But in Second Chronicles 13, 5, it says, do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons? by a covenant of salt. Salt is deeply tied to the promises that God makes to his people. This is what's in view when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he is saying, you are the salt of the earth. This is what they then will understand when they reference, wow, when we make these sacrifices, things that they do repeatedly over the course of their life, when we actually hear the scriptures talked about, things that they repeatedly do each and every week. Salt is inherent in the process, and salt is the reminder, is the evidence that God keeps his promises to his people. Salt is the evidence that God upholds the things that God says that he will uphold. So by their very presence, what Jesus is saying is your very presence here in this land is evidence that God keeps his promise. When we understand what Jesus is actually saying, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus is not actually saying you're the salt of the whole world, not to these groups, not yet. He's actually saying you are the salt of this land. And when we see the word land in scripture, it's referring to the, the Hebrew word Eretz. Eretz means land, but Eretz typically means a particular land. It always means Israel. Even to this very day, if you, if you go to Israel, they have their major newspaper. Like we have the Wall Street Journal, they have Ha'eretz. Ha'eretz is the land. It's talking about a particular land, just like our Wall Street Journal is talking about a particular street, a Wall Street, where all this business happens and it affects the world and vice versa. Ha'eretz, the land, Israel. And so when Jesus is saying, you're the salt of this land, 
your very presence, my people, Hebrew people, Jewish people, in this land of promise is evidence that God has kept his promise to Noah, to Moses, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. You're the evidence of that. In addition to all the things that salt actually provides and does, it is your very presence that is the reminder and is the evidence of God and God honoring his promises. And I can relate to this in terms of I've definitely been in situations where um, I, I've mentioned this before. Um, I've learned in hindsight after you know graduating from college, the college that I went to, um, I stayed in this really small room. There's a big room. There's a small room, right? And this common room off of it. And the small room is is the servants' quarters from back because the college is very old. College has been around since the 1700s. And in the servants' quarters, we call it the servants' quarters because that's where the servants would stay. But then if you actually do the research, you realize, okay, what they meant by servants is not actually servant, right? What they meant by servant was slave. And a lot of the people that they would bring to the school back then, you know, were wealthy people from the South because they had plantations. And so I found, oh, you know what? I was staying in the slave quarters, you know, and I'm like, ooh, my family goes back to one of those plantations. Very, very interested. Let me do some research on that. And what I would find over the course of several years was not only could I find the particular plantation where my family, you know, hailed from, came out of, but that particular plantation, very, very interesting to me, was a very wealthy plantation because it was on a gold, it had a gold mine on it. And as a result of being so wealthy, the plantation owner sent his son to that same college, same college that I went to. And he was very involved with that college, so much so that at that college, they have a lot of records from this family because they kept the correspondence going for years and years and years. Just there are big benefactors and donors, and they really lauded this institution, um, so much so that that was just a big deal for this family. And so in my research, I recognized that, wow, the family lore is that they actually sent one of the enslaved people with him when he went off to college. Where would he have stayed? The university denies this. They don't have records of enslaved people there. Understood. But the family lore is that, no, we actually sent one of the enslaved people. And so I can imagine just knowing my own family how, wow, wow, what, what sorts of prayers might they have been praying to be in a situation like that of enslavement? But yet, you know, seeing opportunities for education and all that comes along with that. Could they have prayed some prayers, not just for, you know, you know, better days for ahead for their children and their grandchildren? Obviously, they don't want them enslaved, um, but also, you know, to be able to take advantage of some of these opportunities that are truly there um, that can really be life changing and enriching. And, and with that, you know, I, I recognize, too, that, you know, when God says, you know, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. There's really no more fervent prayer than a parent praying for their children. There's really no more fervent prayer than that. In everything that I've seen in all the places I've been, parents praying for their, their children, whether their children are grown, whether they're, whether they're praying for grandchildren, um, those prayers hang before God in a way that even when you don't pray, even when you have to sleep, even if you have passed on from this life, those prayers remain there with God. And why I say that is because God responded and answered those prayers for my family. And I was the evidence of that. Because if they were praying prayers that someday there's not this enslavement thing, if they're praying prayers that somehow maybe we'll get the opportunity to do some of these things, like go to schools like this. And I'm thinking I'm so wonderful that I could go to schools like this. It's really God's response to prayers 
that God continues to honor, even though the people who prayed them have passed on. God honors those prayers because God says he's going to honor prayers of righteous people who submit fervent prayers to him. They availeth much, he says. So God honors his word in the relationships that he has with his people. And as a result of that, I feel like, wow, so who, who, who's got space to be haughty and, and think that, you know, you're the center of the world and you're, the, you're all this and all that? Because honestly, probably all of us here are actually, you know, we, we, we do our best, obviously, we're, we're gifted, talented people, but we're truly walking in the prayers of people who have prayed prayers for us that we may not even know. It may be parents, it may be grandparents, it may be ancestors, it may be neighbors. Those prayers are powerful. God honors those prayers because those are his people. And so I say, let, let's consider that like the disciples' presence in the land, like my presence on that university campus, my very presence, your very presence of being in a particular place at a particular time is the evidence that God has honored the prayers of somebody because you still are here. You are still moving. You are still living and breathing. You are still striving ahead. It is your presence that is the reminder that God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And everything else that salt then brings, we are to be. So I, I wanted to close with, with this piece because that was not, the, the Davidic covenant was not the last covenant that was made in scripture, the last big covenant. The last big covenant actually came with Jesus Christ. It's known as the new covenant, the new covenant. So when we think about passages in scripture that go back to some of these old promises that God has made, we can think of things, uh, passages like Deuteronomy 18, 18, where, where God is talking to, to Moses and the people. And he's saying, basically, you know, Moses, um, the people don't want to approach me directly uh, because they're afraid. Uh, because if they feel like they deal with me directly, they're going to die, rightly so, because there's some hard-headed people. So, uh, yes, you're going to be the person who stands in for them. But what is going to happen is, in the future, I'm actually going to raise up a prophet. And this prophet is going to be like you. He's going to be a shepherd of his people. He's going to be a savior for his people. He's going to speak to the people all the things that I speak to him and command him to actually say. It's coming. Deuteronomy 18, 18. Jesus comes on the scene as the savior, as our shepherd, speaking to us all the things that God has spoken to him to convey to us. And we have that in Jesus Christ as our savior. Jesus' promise is to bring the fulfillment of everything that God has always said to make things right. And he's coming back someday to do so. But we have get glimpses and images um, in scripture of what that then looks like. And Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, is just one of the passages that, that I think can give us hope to hold on to in the midst of the crazy situations that we face here in 2023 and 2024 and, and the years that have preceded it. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the words of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So I end with this last image and how we can be salt and reminders of these promises that God has actually made. God will give us opportunities to actually live this out. Um, but God is also, what's new about this promise is that he's empowered us through his Holy Spirit. And that's a difference. We've got something that they didn't have in those previous covenants and promises. We've got the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that it's not on us, but we are to be obedient and, and watch God perform and do miraculous things as God draws the world to himself, as God changes hearts, even in the midst of the worst situations. And, and with that, I'll, I'll sort of conclude and tie in one more piece that I think salt is amazing for. Um, and it's not necessarily things that the disciples would have picked up, but but I think it ties in wonderfully. If you've ever lived in the cold up north, salt, when you throw it on ice, melts the ice. And this is how they de-ice roads. And so when I married my wife, Patty, of course, and Chicago was the place that I would go visit every Christmas in de late December, um, I realized the value of salt as I'm driving, right? Salt, throw it on the road. This is how we get rid of the ice so that people can actually drive safely. And when I think about that, I think, wow, that ice, salt melting ice. There, there are so many people who walk around today because of life situations, and they've got this iced over heart that is just not receptive to God for whatever reason. But God's desire is that everybody come to know him and that they repent and place their faith and trust in him. And so in order for that to happen, that ice is going to have to melt. So how does God break through that ice? Well, when God says we are the salt of the earth and salt has those properties, don't be surprised if God places us in the lives of people that by our very presence, our very presence of God working through us, things start to change with those folks based on us living the life that God has called us to live. And when the Holy Spirit breaks through and breaks in on those hearts, it's, it's not a breaking in like in, in the opening illustration where you break in to cause chaos or you extract by taking value because you're, you're breaking in as a thief. The Holy Spirit breaks in and, and leaves a deposit, leaves a deposit. And out of that, relationship is developed with God. Relationship is developed with God's people. And life takes on a whole new tenor and whole new flavor and meaning. And, and, and I, I experienced a bit of this, how the Holy Spirit can actually do this um, just two weeks ago, because I'll say this. I went and I met with, I was, I was working and I was on the East Coast, and I met with um, a lady and her husband who were really good friends with my family when I was growing up. And the last time I saw them was in 1980. I was eight years old. I'm 50, right? The last time I saw her, I was eight. And I said, oh, you know, I didn't know that they were here. My mom told me that they were, you know, probably three hours from where I was. So I'm like, you know what? I'll, uh, I need to get to the airport, but let me swing by and just say hi. And so, you know, I got the address and I'm going and I'm traveling, I'm thinking, okay, I don't even remember what she looks like. It's been so long. I don't remember. What? Are, how am I going to pick her out? I'm just going to go meet her at this location. Like, how am I going to know this? 
and I've got this plane to catch. And okay, so maybe I'll stop and say, hey, for like 30 minutes to be on my way. So I get there, I get to the location. Um, and <laughs> what's interesting, I, don't, I couldn't remember what she would have looked like or anything. Um, this lady comes up to me and she says my name, but she says my name, not Rick. She says Rick Rick. And that's a name that only people who knew me from when I was very little, that's what I went by. And when she said my name, so many things came back. Of course I knew it was her. And then she 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 took me into to her home. And believe it or not, she has the exact same furniture that she had when I was eight years old. And it all started to come back. And her daughter, who was also my age, who was in my third grade class, second and third grade class, came came by. And of course, you know, it all is now starting to come back. And what I thought would be just a, a 30 minute, you know, stay, I ended up staying for four hours. I was so tired trying to drive to catch my plane. But you want to talk about fellowship? That was tremendous. And, and I say that as just this illustration in terms of the Holy Spirit works just like that. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you know, we focus on these miracles of people speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit falling. And it's like, but actually the people who were listening, scripture says they heard God being praised in their native language, in the tongues that they had of their youth, the things that went way back, because all these folks are immigrants to Jerusalem. They were raised in all these other countries because of the exile. And so the languages that they spoke in these other countries, those were what they were raised with. But when they got to Jerusalem, okay, we're going to speak Aramaic. But when you hear something that goes to the heart of who you are and your identity, it goes way back and, and it calls forth the things that God has really put in there. That's the Holy Spirit breaking in, but not breaking in like a thief, breaking through, breaking through. And it gets your attention in ways now God can actually do some things. And out of that, those folks in Acts became the way that the disciples went into all the world because they were from all those places in the world. So they paved the way. They were very instrumental. But that's how the Holy Spirit actually works with us. And before we put the Holy Spirit in the box, the Holy Spirit can work in a million different ways. But the fact that it goes through, it melts ice, it reaches hearts, it, it actually reaches us in places that, that we just don't have defenses for, that's the work of God. That's what it means to be salt, but empowered through the Holy Spirit. And we have the blessing and the opportunity based on the promise of the new covenant that Christ has left with us. So with that... I'm going to close with let us be salt. And I just remembered that we have to also have to do the communion. I should have stopped 10 minutes ago. Um, so let us pray and, and turn our hearts um, to, towards a time of communion and fellowship um, in illustration of what we're actually describing and talking about. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it accomplishes what you set it out to accomplish, Lord, that even though we can be bombarded by the clamor of the world around us, Lord. You know our name, Father. You know our identity, Lord. And you have a way of, even with a still, small voice, reaching through all the noise, Lord, and, and getting our attention, Lord, and drawing us to you, Lord. Help us to be salt, Lord, in the lives of those around us. Help us to live in such a way, Lord, that we are the evidence that you have fulfilled and continue to fulfill your promises, Lord, to not just people, but to all of creation. Lord, as we look to you now, Lord, for, for the fellowship that um, you bless us to partake with you, Lord, help us, Lord, to, to have uh, a clear conscience, 
Help us to anchor ourselves in the spirit, Lord. Help us to, Lord, live according to your grace. Live according to how you empower us to live, Lord, not leaning to our own strength and understanding. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.